Hi, I'm Mark Caro, and welcome to the first episode of the Caro Popcast. I'm so glad you're here as we launch this podcast devoted to conversations with musicians, filmmakers, actors, chefs, and other creative people. In my years as a journalist for the Chicago Tribune and other outlets, I've loved talking about the creative process with many kinds of artists. I've done this for stories, I've done it on radio, and I've done it on stage, including in my own live series, Talking in Space, which ran at a Chicago area club until the pandemic put it on hold. Now such conversations will be taking place here on the Carol Popcast and the Carol Pop website. I'm very excited about it, especially given that my first guest is one of my favorite performers and songwriters Richard Thompson. I can't think of another musician who has produced such a consistently excellent body of work over such a long time. He was writing great songs and playing jaw-droppingly expressive guitar as a founding member of the British folk band Fairport Convention in 1967. And more than 50 years later, he's still creating great music, including his 2018 album, 13 Rivers, and a couple of COVID-era EPs that he has released on digital formats. Richard Thompson has a new memoir out, Beeswing, named after one of his songs that the first time you hear it, you think it must have existed forever. She was a rare thing, fine as a beeswing, so fine a breath of wind might blow her away. Richard Thompson has more than a few of those. Says James to Red Molly, my hat's off to you. It's Vincent Black Lightning, 1952. May I just note that two of his most beloved songs, 1952 Vincent Black Lightning and Beeswing, were released in the 1990s, his fourth decade of producing music? How many other artists and songwriters are still peaking in their fourth decade? His 1999 album, Mock Tudor, may be his best solo album. And as I mentioned, 13 Rivers, released a mere three years ago when Richard Thompson was 69 years old, is awfully strong as well. And his tour for that album with his trio was tremendous. That storm did come. I'm longing for the storm, but the storm won't come. But back to Beeswing the book. It technically covers 1967 to 1975, the year in which he paused his career when he'd been recording and performing music with his then wife, Linda Thompson. The memoir does extend a bit after that into their landmark 1982 album, Shoot Out the Lights, the dissolution of their marriage, and the continuation of his career as a solo artist. But the bulk of it concentrates on his years with Fairport Convention and afterward as he figures out how he wants to live as an artist and as a human being on this planet. He tells great stories in the book, and he does so in our conversation as well. How could Fairport Convention have fired such a one-of-a-kind singer-songwriter as Sandy Denny? On what Badfinger song did he play as a session musician? How close did he come to joining the Eagles? Yes, those Eagles. If you're a Richard Thompson fan, this conversation will be a treat. And if you're not a Richard Thompson fan, you will be. Quick note. For this first Carol Popcast episode, we had some technical issues, which is to say that my microphone had a bulky connection and I was too inept to notice, as well as too caught up in a great conversation. When I'm talking, the sound quality is not at the professional standard to which we aspire. Sorry about that. On the other hand, Richard Thompson sounds great, and he is the star of this show. So thank you, Richard Thompson, for your technical expertise, as well as your generosity, insights, sublime music, and all-around awesomeness. Please enjoy Richard Thompson on the Carol Popcast. I really enjoyed the book. Uh, it's it, it was fascinating for me to take this you know, deep dive into those, those early years. And I'm, I'm wondering for your point of view, is this something difficult for you to do? Are you, are you someone who naturally likes to look back or is this something that was kind of like you had to sort of make yourself do it? Uh, I think I've always selectively looked back. Uh, so the, the things I, I enjoyed look, I've always enjoyed looking back at and, uh, things I probably, uh, shoved under the carpet somewhat. So, uh, in, in writing the book, I really had to look at everything, which was sometimes, uh, Revealing, sometimes painful, um, 
and uh, sometimes uh, quite amusing. You know, remembering anecdotes was a lot of fun. Uh, I think the hardest thing was actually the the, the chronology, but putting the chronology together, um, figuring out what happened when, because no one really seemed to have very good records uh, about uh, any of the Fairport stuff, you know, all that 60s, 70s stuff, really. Um, I had to be stitched together from various sources. So that, that was the hardest part. So were you, did you sort of go back and listen to all this stuff, the sort of fresh years of the time? I mean, were there, were there things that sort of surprised you when you sort of transported yourself back into this time period, either musically or just kind of like having new perspective on kind of the interpersonal stuff that was going on? Uh, th th there were a few surprises. Um, Musically, uh, there were um, equal um, joys and disappointments, I think, uh, in listening to old stuff uh, to put myself in the frame. Um, uh, some records seem to stand up very well, I, and I'm, I'm grateful that we had a wonderful recording engineer, John Wood, um, just, just a great engineer and, and a great studio back in those days. Uh, so stuff tends to sound fairly timeless. It's hard to tell when, when it was recorded. Uh, well, we, we didn't tend to... To, to lean towards uh, fashionable sounds of, of the time. We didn't do too much flanging, phasing, um, you know, uh, triple tracking, that kind of stuff. Uh, stuff is pretty much uh, recorded in, in, a, in as, as, as true a way as possible. And, and that's held up very well over the years. And the, the same is true of like Nick, Nick Drake records, Sandy Denny records, uh, people from the same uh, musical stable. Um, the stuff really holds up very well. Um, you know, and, and there's endless things I would I would want to change uh, sonically, you know. And, and of course, in writing a book, there's endless things that you, you want to change about your life, <laughs> which is uh, a lot harder to do. <laughs> so um, you, you have to keep forgiving yourself for being an idiot uh, from time to time. So, so which were the songs and albums that held up surprisingly well for you and which were the ones where you thought oh that wasn't quite how i remembered it yeah um Unhalf Bricking, uh, which we did in 1969 um I, I thought really holds up very well as a record um and it's an eight track record it's, it's got a couple of very long things on it and uh of those eight tracks three tracks are kind of throwaways uh well we could have lost those very easily uh, and made a fabulous five track uh, ep <laughs> that, that would have been just stupendous um so, so in spite of that having having that, that kind of extra baggage on the record uh, I, I think it's a really really good record and and there are tracks on there that i think are actually important i think i think there's a wonderful uh, bob dylan cover on there called Percy's Song. Um, oh, I love that. Yeah, uh, I think I think I think Bob himself said that that was just one of his favorite covers of, of his own material. That's nice. And there's a song called A Sailor's Life, which, which was a kind of the first, you know, true British folk rock record um, in the sense that it was blending uh, popular music forms with uh, British traditional forms. That, that was the first real uh, emphatic stab in that direction. Something that, that on one hand seems kind of obvious and on the other hand was kind of revelatory to me was the idea that you were the first British band playing British music. Like you would think that you would think intuitively that that would have happened before, but it really like British rock and, you know, and, and just that just general overall umbrella really was American style music. And the idea of actually doing a British dance tune as a British rock band was unheard of at that point. Right. It was unheard of. Yeah. Uh, you know, the Beatles, um, did some you know fairly English English sounding stuff, um, and the Kinks did as well. Uh, but but they, they were more, yeah. But they were more influenced, I think, by British musical tradition uh, rather than than actual you know ancient tradition. Um, Fairport really wanted to go all the way and to revive uh, the traditional music of the British Isles, uh, to bring it to a new audience, to bring it to a contemporary audience, uh, to make it sound contemporary, so that it could be enjoyed by um, you know a whole new audience. Um, in America, you, you had less of a split in that way. That there, there was less of a gulf between a dying tradition and contemporary music um you, you know there's a kind of thread that goes from appalachia to country music to, to rock and roll the, you know through through new orleans to rock and roll you know there, there are these kind of continuous threads in, in britain um you know traditional music was was pretty much dead um you had to really track down the last singers who, who were still singing this stuff um so it was a kind of a, a point of crisis in many ways uh, and fairport really uh felt we were on a mission 
it's interesting because you think about the, the sort of the biggest legend, quote unquote, legendary rock bands, and almost all of them are British. I mean, you know, between the Beatles and the Stones and Led Zeppelin and the Who and Pink Floyd, and it's 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 all this sort of you know stuff that's filtered through this other sensibility. But you don't have American bands that even have that kind of hmm. you know scope for some reason. So I don't know if there's some some reason that like it sort of needed to go to Britain to sort of do that but there's you know it's it and it's just and it's a different thing than what you guys were doing which was you know really actually being rooted in you know the country where you live yeah i, I think um you, you know bands like the beatles the stones uh pink floyd uh led zeppelin you know there, there is a kind of a european filter or, or, or a european sensibility that 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 that, that, that lays over the music that, that does make it a little bit different um so perhaps it did have to go to europe and then go back to america to to have that slightly different edge to it um and in, in some ways to be more accessible to a predominantly white audience i suppose uh fair but we're, we're really trying to do something radically different where we we, we we really wanted to change music you know to change british music itself and uh stop being slavish imitators and uh you know the, the, it became more of a cult than a mainstream thing um i think perhaps to our regret i, I think we, we, we thought we actually were going to change you know the accents people sang with and that kind of thing but uh that really didn't happen and uh our influence was you know, to, to a small circle, really. Uh, you know, bands like Steel Ice Band, um, uh, the the Albion, the Albion Band. Um, you know, get, get carried on the, 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 that that tradition, but um, it was never mainstream. Right. Yeah, and I guess the link there would be Joe Boyd, and that you're playing at the UFO Club, and you have you know the the Sid Barrett version of Pink Floyd, and Sid Sid he sang with a British accent, and that was very different from what was go you know that other sort of thing too. And he had this kind of wind in the willows thing going on, and then this sort of space thing. Um, and you know, yeah. and Joe Boyd like sort of links you know the, your two bands together. Yeah. Um... I love Sid. I, I love Sid's writing. He had a sense of whimsy, a very sort of British sense of whimsy. You, you say Wind, Wind in the Willows, I think that's very, very accurate. And there's a bit of kind of, uh, I don't know, there's a bit of Jeeves and Wooster in there and a bit of uh, Noel Coward or something in there. It's hard to exactly place the roots, but, but there's definitely a real British sensibility to him. Uh, and he almost sounds out of place, really, in a band that started out as a blues band. You know, Pink Floyd were, 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 a, were a, you know, a straight-ahead blues band that, that then became psychedelicized. But, uh, you know, in, in terms of their harmonic sense, uh, you know, they, they were still very, you know, pentatonic, blues-based band. Um, uh, but, but Sid had definitely had this, this whole side to him that was uh, unique and different. And, and I think when Sid dropped out, um, Roger Waters' vision of the band was much darker and uh, stranger and, and a bit less... Uh, but less original, I think. Right. Yeah, and there's just something also about the sort of the intimacy of. I mean, you've you've had a career that's lasted for a long time on a, on, on a really sort of steady level of of quality and stuff. Whereas these other bands kind of got like like I'm sure when you're seeing you know you're running into all these British musicians, it, it doesn't seem like it was an enormous music community at that time because music was sort of newer and you just didn't have this explosion of bands. So you probably you know so you're running into these musicians and like years later, you, you probably at that point couldn't envision, Oh yeah, they're going to be playing stadiums in the seventies. <laughs> that's going to be how people experience their music. Um, you know, I'd rather experience your music the way I've experienced it over the years than to sort of have it become huge and then inaccessible, mm -hmm. but it just sort of went into these different directions at that point. It really did. Yeah. Um, yeah, the London music scene, sort of 67 onwards, was fairly intimate and, and you did know, all the bands, really. Um, in many cases, you, you were with the same management or you were with the same uh, agency. So you would get booked over and over and over again uh, with the same people. And for us, it was, you know, the Floyd, uh, Crazy World of Arthur Brown, Blossom Toes, Family. Um, and that's about it. You know, they're just they're, they're like the same bands, T-Rex, you know, Tyrannosaurus Rex. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, I think everyone's ambition was basically to to, uh, to, to eat, you know, to, to have you know three meals a day. Um, it was, uh, you know, it, it wasn't um, a, a, a particularly affluent lifestyle um, at that point. Um, and I think our ambition as Fairport was to, to command a reasonable fee that we could break even. 
And uh, and, and in fact, when we did start breaking even, we were playing theatres, uh, selling out theatres, and still not making that much money. So, so um, you know, and, and then some other bands kicked on, as you, as you say, you know, get kicked on to the sort of stadium thing, which is a, a whole strange um, anomaly of uh, 20th century music and 21st century music, <laughs> which uh, I don't uh, <clears throat> pretend to understand. I, lo- I love the detail that I think it was the first Fairport uh gig you guys played love seven and seven is yeah yeah you know um, like i remember discovering love later and thinking you know loving that band but i love that there was sort of that kind of connection of you guys with that sort of sam the la you know pro pre-punk folk thing going on yeah proto-punk whatever you want to call it yeah um well fairport we were always big fans of lyrics uh i think that was our main focus really what we loved um the, the songs of the, of the great singer-songwriters of the time, be like Phil Oaks, uh, Dylan, uh, Leonard Cohen, Johnny Mitchell, uh, Richard Farina, uh, and we would cover their songs as a, as a young band before we started writing our, our, our own material. Um, and uh, and we recognized in some of the LA bands, like like The Birds and Like Love, uh, you know, really good songwriting, really good lyric writing. And, uh, and The Birds, of course, had... had quite a lot of uh, folk music connections so we uh, appreciated that as well uh, I, th- I think we saw a more of an affinity with um, you know the, the 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 LA bands than we did with the San Francisco bands that, that we, we thought were a bit uh, a bit uh, excessive a, a bit too uh, a bit too dr- drugged out you know yeah the, the approach that you were taking I mean this is sort of an obvious thing I guess but taking this sort of British approach to to music how did that influence the way you sort of learned and developed as a guitar player as a guitar player i was always uh listening to a lot of different things uh, so, so i grew up with some of my father's uh jazz guitar records um particularly les paul and uh Janka reinhardt well which isn't a bad place to start let's face it uh, and then uh, um then my sister had the rock and roll records so i'm listening to james burton i'm listening to uh, scotty moore um uh, so I, you know, I'm, I'm really t- c- c- casting a wide net in terms of what I'm listening to, and, and then I started listening to classical music when I was a teenager uh, and jazz when I was a teenager. So all this is kind of going into what would become a guitar style, uh, and I think by, by the age of eighteen, nineteen, I, I was really trying not to sound like. Um, other guitar players in, in what I saw as a rather crowded um, London, you know, scene. Um, yeah, yeah, there was a lot of. You know, you had Peter Green, you had Eric Clapton, um, uh, Mick Taylor, Savoy Brown, um, all these, uh, you know, all, all these basically blues-based guitar players. So I said, well, I'm not going to be like that. I'm going to be something different. Uh, you know, there's too much competition. And, and that really drove me to, to, to try to be a bit more original. And I became more influenced by uh, the country and Western guitar players and by, you know, jazz players and by non-guitar, by uh, keyboard players. Uh, influenced me a great deal. And um, and horn players, people like John Coltrane influenced me a great deal. When you, yeah, I thought of the Coltrane thing with you on, on especially some of the sort of electric solos I heard even later in your career when you when you went back and listened to those old you know fairport conventions what did you think of yourself as a guitarist um well compared to where i am now i, I think of myself as, as limited uh, as uh not having the range that i've got now and uh you know sometimes i think some, some of my musical obsessions may have been misplaced but but i, I think sometimes I, I could hit something and, and be really quite tasteful and quite original um but it didn't happen all the time so so i would be very critical of my younger self if i could speak to that young lad <laughs> of course the thing that happens between unhappy and legion reef is that the the tragic car crash which you go into in, in pretty vivid detail it's real i'd never you know really sort of read about it certainly not like that and i'm wondering if that's if if that's something you've kind of carried with you all these years or whether it was something in the the research of the book you sort of had to confront it and all those details kind of came back like oh this is really what it was like it's not something that i would want to think about every day um so uh you know to, to 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 put it in the book then i really had to uh to remember uh, pretty much as it happened. Um, and I just tried to be as truthful as possible and, and try to write down it, all the detail that I, I could remember. Um, 
I think obviously it's a very traumatic thing for the band uh, and for all of us. Um, I think it affected our decision making uh, for a couple of years after that. Um, yeah, I think in those days uh, you didn't uh, you, you didn't go to therapy. I mean that re didn't really exist in that way. Uh, it was uh, more the post-war generation where, where where you say, okay, well, yes, you've had a rough time, but just get over it. You know, just move on with life. You know, stiff upper lip and 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 deal with it. Uh, so we never really processed it uh, properly. We, we never really grieved properly. We never mourned properly. Um, and I think. Uh, Certainly for, for the next couple of years, uh, that, that was a, a deep, deep trauma for everybody in the band. And, uh, you know, on the 50th anniversary of the accident, uh, um, the, uh, the, the, the three original members of Fairport, well, we, we kind of phoned each other and, and, and commiserated with each other um, because cause it still affects us. Uh, we still think back to that as a real traumatic turning point for, for all of us. Right. Just just put this in perspective for people listening. Uh it's, there was a van crash on uh, May 12, 1969. Uh, the band's van had crashed, and uh, the drummer, Martin Lampel, was killed along with uh, uh, Jeannie Franklin, whom uh, you'd been dating at that time. And, uh, you know, within, what, six months, you'd recorded, you'd, you'd come up with a new direction and uh, recorded a new album. And, like, like to, I mean, talk about not sort of going through therapy. You guys were out of hospital and into the recording studio almost immediately. Well, I think that was our therapy. I, I think we had to throw ourselves into work um, and also to have, a, you know, a mission, to have a project. Uh, and, and the Legion Leaf album was really uh, a savior in that way. Uh, it kept us busy. It kept us focused and it kept us driven as well. Um, otherwise, uh, I don't know what we would have done. Um, I, think, I think it was just so important to us at that time to, to, uh, to keep moving musically. Right. And then after that, um, uh, Sandy was, was fired from the band and you, you, you talk about that in the book and that was something I didn't realize. Do you, do you sort of look back on that and, and, and think, Oh, I'm not, you know, I, that, it, that seemed clear at the time than it does now. Or, I mean, obviously you all stayed in touch and friends and everything, but, uh, it, it seems like it's sort of a mysterious or sort of a little thing that kind of blew up into a big thing. Uh, I think that's absolutely right. Yeah. Um, well, as, as I said, I, I think we weren't making very good decisions um, after the accident. And, uh, I, I, you know, in retrospect to Fire Sandy, it was probably crazy. Um, but we did get the feeling that, that she kind of already absented herself from the band and was probably planning a solo career or something. Um, she didn't seem quite as dedicated to the band as, as the rest of us in, in that way. So, so uh, perhaps she was already gone and, um, and it wouldn't have made any difference. How much did her singing sort of affect the way you wrote and also her songwriting for that matter? Like how much did that, did you two sort of feed off each other in the artistic sense of writing the songs? Uh, you know, I can't speak for Sandy, but uh, she certainly inspired me. Um, I, and I can never emulate the way that she wrote. She was a very individualistic uh, songwriter. Um, she wrote a very interesting uh, um, um, harmonic structure to her songs. Uh, and she wrote uh, about you know, uh, subject matter that was unique to her, I think. Uh, um, sometimes it was hard to decipher her songs. Uh, sometimes they were, you know, fairly obvious and right there, but but it, but it was a, a different, it's a different song landscape than the one that I was really trying to create for myself. But um, I, I, th I think... Uh, I think there's a very pleasant sense of rivalry with Sandy. Um, just the fact, you know, you'd say, well, I've written two songs for the next album. How many have you written? And that kind of thing. So we kind of egg each other on a little bit in that way. Well, also, I'd imagine that writing a song that you're going to sing is different from writing a song that Sandy's going to sing or later that, that Linda's going to sing. I mean, I want to see The Bright Lights Tonight is a very different album from Henry the Human Fly. Um, and you know, I wonder how much... You're writing, you know, sort of, you had, you know, was catering to like those voices uh, and, you know, maybe specifically, you know, how they would, you know, cater to Sandy and then to Linda. Well, absolutely. Yes. Um, I think you're always very conscious when you are writing for other voices. Uh, 
that uh, you're doing, you're writing something, uh, you know, comprehensible to, to the singer. You know, the singer has to be able to understand what you're saying in order to express the right emotion for the song, um, well, which Sandy and Linda were both great at. I mean, they're both really great interpreters of a song. Um, but when I was writing Henry, I, I was thinking, well, um, I should just indulge myself. I, 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 should, I should write these, these uh, quirky, you know, slightly surreal songs. And... Because I'm the one who's going to sing it, and, and I understand what, what I'm saying. Um, I don't have to cater to someone else's um, musical style or, or, or um, uh, abilities. Uh, I'll just I'll just write this this weird stuff and see what happens. So, so yeah, that was a different mindset uh, writing a, a solo record. So when so when you went to write, um, I want to see the brothers tonight. Did you were you consciously like, okay, this is going to be a more straightforward album duet i mean not duet but you know but the album for these two voices and it's going to just like have a different sort of approach well absolutely yeah uh, i think also a song like bright lights i'm really uh I'm, I'm really trying to reflect linda's personality as well uh so, so i'm kind of imagining her, sing, her singing the song uh, and it's suiting her saying what she's saying um which i i, th- I think is is uh it's actually quite an inspiring thing when it's that specific. You know, so one of the hardest things about writing a song is exactly what are you writing about? But uh, if you've got someone else exactly in mind um, as the interpreter of the song, that then that becomes much easier and you really can be very, very specific. So, so do you have in mind when you're writing, like, okay, I'm going to do When I Get to the Border and she's going to do Withered and Died and I'm going to do uh, End of the Rainbow and she's going to do uh, I Want to See the Bradley Tonight or Down... Um, you know, down with the drunk control. Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, however, uh, sometimes it, it switched. Sometimes, uh, you know, a Linda song became a Richard song or, or vice versa. Um, sometimes I, I, I'd say, well, I can't sing this. You know, you, you have to sing it. Uh, sometimes uh, you, th- you think, well, if, if, if you sing it in your key, then, then I can play a better guitar solo. I mean, just stuff like that, you know, stuff as basic as that would happen. So, uh, yeah, the basic idea was very specific tailoring uh, to each voice and each personality. But then sometimes, uh, you know, it, uh, the, the rules broke down and uh, and things shifted. You know, I did a little Googling and, and I, re- I Googled you and Badfinger. And what I did find was that you were, you were on a version of Come and Get It credited to a band called uh, The Magic Christians, but it was actually a bad finger session you run also. And that was probably when they were in their, maybe after they'd done All Things Was Pass and they thought, oh, let's just get like all these people to play guitar at the same time. Because they were pretty good. PDM's pretty good guitarist. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the the bad finger session I, I did, uh, George Harrison was producing, but, but he didn't show up. I, I, I was disappointed that because I wanted to meet him. I'd never met him. Uh, and it just went on forever. So I, it was, I, I just thought it was so wasteful, you know. Uh, um, there seemed to be such a wasteful attitude, but by some people in those days, uh, where you're just uh, racking up huge expenses uh, on studio time, uh, but, but people who haven't written the song or, or they're, they're just sitting around, you know, talking or, or you know, smoking a bit of dope or something, you know. Um, it, it, it just seemed very inefficient and unstructured uh, compared to, you know, 10 years earlier when uh, you, you expect to make an album in three hours, you know. Uh, suddenly it all got very, very sloppy and loose. But, uh, well, I was getting paid anyway, so that's fine. Now, so are you, like, just strumming an acoustic guitar in the background, or is there actually, like, a little Richard Thompson kind of guitar licks thing happening that if I listen to a Bad Finger record, I'd be like, there he is? No, I, th- I think I'm playing rhythm. Uh, I can't remember if it was one song or two songs that we did. Um, but I, was, I, was, I think I was, I was playing acoustic rhythm guitar, and there was another, another electric rhythm guitar player. And I, whatever lead there was was overdubbed, I think. Yeah, I think, he, I think George was produced at least in name day after day. So I don't know, maybe you're on Yeah, that's day. a good song, yeah. They, they, they did some great songs, Badfinger, actually. Some great records. Great yeah. Records. Oh, yeah. Um, I have to say, I'm, I, I, I'm not the only one who's kind of intrigued by the idea that somehow you might have been a member of the Eagles. <laughs> it seems like, cause, and you talk about how you saw them playing Peaceful Easy Feeling and what a tight band that was. And I thought, if there's any song that you would never mistake for a Richard Thompson song, it's Peaceful Easy Feeling. Yeah, it's... Uh... Yeah, I mean, it's a very California kind of song, isn't it, really? Um, it was written by Jack Tempchin. Jack Temp- Tempchin, I think I pronounced that correctly. Who I think is a kind of California guy. It's all about being out in the California desert, really. And, um, and um, 
Yeah, I probably couldn't relate to that very well. Um, I don't think I would have been happy in the Eagles. I, I would like hearing Glenn and uh, Don sing harmonies on Withered and Die, though. That would have been fun, or End of the Rainbow. Well, th- those guys are seriously great singers. I mean, they're, they're, they're fabulous harmony singers. Just absolutely great. And uh, uh, hearing them in a rehearsal in, in kind of pre-Eagles days uh, was pretty special. I mean, I mean, the, the harmonies were so good. It was so tight. And... Um, uh, with with uh, um, <clears throat> what's his name uh, Randy as well uh, on on bass um, Randy Meisner as well who's a fabulous like a really high high harmony singer they just sounded like a million dollars and then, and then the band approached you as well was that after Robbie Robertson was out yeah uh, that that was later I, I, I was approached a couple of times by the band I, I think I think once when when Robbie left. Um, uh, and, and then later, maybe ten years later, when it was all a bit, a bit sad, as far as I was concerned. Um, but I mean, again, I, I think I, I wanted to plow my own furrow, musically speaking. Um, and I, 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 I'm glad about decisions like that. Is, is there any band that you would have joined if they if they'd offered you? No, I don't think so. <laughs> They never. I could have seen Fleetwood Mac, you know, pulling you in for one of their incarnations. They went through a lot of uh, talented guitarists. Yeah, um, yeah, amazing. I, I'm, Neil Finn did it. I mean, that that, that was pretty amazing. And uh, Mike Mike Campbell, yeah. Um, so that was that that was pretty uh, left field as far as I was concerned. But um, yeah, me too. Yeah. Um, no, I don't think I want to play with Fleetwood Mac. Thank you very much. So, so, so if Lindsay's out and, then, and they'd come to you and say, hey, we want you to replace Lindsay Buckingham, you would have been like, no, thanks. What would I say? I'd say, uh, you know the number you just dialed? That's, that's, that's the fee. <laughs> I think it's when you're talking about Henry the Human Fly, uh, you, you wrote, uh, I knew the songs came out of me, but I didn't know why. Why these eccentric subjects? Was I just being a channel for music that hovers out there somewhere until it picks up the medium to bring it into the world? Did you did you ever answer that for yourself? Um, it's a thing I think about from time to time. Uh, I think particularly if, if you're in a live concert, especially an acoustic concert where... where, where you have a room full of people who are listening to you, and uh, it, it seems to me that everybody in the room is important. It, it isn't. It, it isn't. It isn't just you performing at people. It, it, it's like like this 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 uh, this community thing happens, and um, and you're the one who happens to be on the stage. You're, you're, you're the, but it's kind of an illusion. And you're the one the music flows through. You're the conduit for the music. But that also seems to be an illusion. It just seems to be this this shared thing. And if if you take one person out of the room, the music will change. You know, there's something about the 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 number of molecules in the room. You know, that's very important. And it'll be interesting to do some shows. I've got some shows coming up next week, or where um, you know they're all socially distant shows indoors. And um, it'll be interesting to see if, if half a house. Is the same as a, as a full house. Uh, it'll be a strange, uh, a strange experience. Well, you've done a lot of these online shows too, so you, 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 that's the other end of it where you've experienced that, and I imagine that feels quite different. Yeah, that's very different. Uh, that's a bit more like uh, you know being in a recording studio or something, where, where you're almost pretending there's an audience, um, or you're playing for yourself, if you like. Uh, all the, uh, the the streaming things that I've done in the last year, I mean, it's, it's a wonderful connection to the audience. It's great to have that thing there. And, and you know people appreciate it because you, you can look at the comments uh, as they're scrolling down and, and people say, oh, I love that song, fantastic. But uh, it's still a little remu- removed from, you know, the reality of of performing and you've got somebody, you know, three feet in front of you, um, you know, uh, and you just feel that that real surge of communication. Um, it's harder to feel that that, that, that communicative spirit um, uh, w- w- when you're at other ends of... Uh, of uh, <laughs> the, uh, the the uh, the digital world. Did did this experience kind of change your songwriting at all? I mean, like, did a different kind of song come out while you're sort of this weird, isolated, connecting via technology sort of stretch? I was looking for that, but it didn't really happen. Uh, I, I was thinking, gosh, I'll probably be writing that this whole different, you know, type of song. You know, I'd be writing a lot of prison songs or something. Um, 
you know. But, uh, you know, I, I looked at the subject matter of my, my songs and it's just all over the place. I mean, there, there's no real sense of uh, this is, uh, you know, a time being being reflected here. I'm, I'm just writing from ima- imagination rather than, you know, reflecting my, my current reality. I'm writing more from memory, I suppose, really. In general, do you feel like the way you write songs has been consistent throughout or has it changed from year to year, decade to decade? Well, I think you have to imagine that you're evolving and that, and that you are improving and certainly uh, that you're changing. I, I, and I, I think I tend to think that every recording project at least is a different statement. It's a different kind of thing. So, so you, you might think uh, of, of a clear theme for an album or, or the theme might be rather looser than that. It might, might be just uh, um, you, you, you see some commonality to the tunes you've written in the last year or so and you think well, well that, that's a kind of a structure right there you know that, that there's a kind of a re- reflection of something there um, but uh, I, I think you, you have to keep exploring and keep experimenting uh, and certainly as a songwriter I think you have to play with different forms sometimes uh, you, you can't just keep writing it you know to the same same three chords you can't just keep writing the same country song over and over again you know I, I think sometimes you just have to get out of that and uh, look for something different and you may well fail but it's it's worth failing occasionally uh, to come up with something that's uh, new and refreshing well every once in a while someone on twitter will write something like who's had the longest sustained career in rock and roll or something like that and i tend to and i tend to chime in richard thompson because i i feel like you know, there's so many artists, bands, whatever, that sort of have like their peak, and then they have like the last 20 years that you really haven't had to pay attention to. Um, and and with you, there's just been this consistency. I mean, 13 Rivers is a terrific album. Oh, thank you. And I saw you and the band play that at uh, Talia Hall here as well. Um, and you know, song, songs of your, some of your most beloved songs, you know, were from the 90s, uh, like, you know, 1952, Vince Black Lightning, and the, the song that gave this book its title, Beeswing. And, you know, you're you're into your, you know, you started in the 60s and you're in the 90s by the time those come around. Um, so you're constantly finding new songs that sound like they've been around all the time. And I doubt you can articulate how you do it, but how do you do it? <laughs> Oh, tough question. Tough question. Uh, I think you, you just have to 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 uh, to, to keep beginning again. Uh, you have to be an e- eternal student, first of all, of music. You can never assume. Um, you, you know, I've, I've sold X number of records, so therefore I must be great. Therefore, I, I can start to relax. Um, uh, you have to re- really keep reinventing it yourself. Um, but if not on a daily basis, then on a weekly basis or a monthly basis, you have to say, okay, I'm going to start again. Who am I? Why am I doing this? You have to keep asking yourself questions. And um, and I think you have to raise your standards as well. I, I, I think you have to be dissatisfied with yourself, with um, things that don't come up to your expectation. I, I think you really have to keep going deeper if you like into yourself uh, uh, to find um the uh the, the the common areas with other human beings I, 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 because you're really as a songwriter you want to speak the truth and to find the truth you have to find it within yourself and sometimes you have to look a long way in to find it you talk in the book about how um like sandy denny nick drake uh, John Martin, you know, when they, when, when some of these people, they have some commercial disappointments, they begin to doubt themselves and it, be, and it sort of, and it, then they start making changes that aren't good for their music. Um, somehow is, is it a matter of confidence or what is it like? How did you avoid falling into that trap that those guys fell into? I don't think I did avoid it. I, I think, uh, I, I, I did fall into that a couple of times um, where I, I thought, you know, well, we, we have to try to reach a more uh, commercial, you know, audience. Um, what do we do? And the usual answer is that you get a different producer in or, or you know, you get a different manager or something. You know, you, you tend to do it from the outside. Um, uh, and I think, I, you know, I've, I've never thought that, that I, I've written uncommercial songs. Um, 
And sometimes I, I've had successful covers by other people, you know, so as a singer myself, I've had hits by other people. Um, so I, I never saw a need to, to change that aspect of it, really. Um, but, but sometimes you think, well, if, if we got, you know, Paul McCartney in to produce a record, you know, that's going to make a difference, then we'll have a hit. But it really does. It really works in my experience. I think it has worked historically for some people. Um, but it depends on how much of a whore you want to be in, in some cases. Yeah, you know, I can think of examples of, uh, of people who've really just uh, sold themselves down the river, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, you know, in, uh, you know, morally, uh, to, to to make the, the you know the most commercial record they can possibly make. And yes, it has changed their career. Yes, they made loads of money. Um, but uh, do I respect them? Nah, not really. All right, you have to name names now. Uh, no names. No names. No names. <laughs> um, are you, do you do you feel more more involved in like sort of the production of your your albums now than you did earlier, or have you always sort of had the same kind of engagement in that aspect of it? I've always felt that I, I pretty much had control. Um, certainly for the last you know thirty odd years, that's quite a long time. Uh, so um, if I bring in a producer from time to time, um, it's really just to try something different uh, to to see if it comes out differently, um, to see what, what other people will, will, will bring to it. Because yeah, you can get tired of your own ideas sometimes. Um, do I think I'm the best producer of my own music? I, I probably do. Um, but it's, it's just fun to change it up sometimes. Um, so I, I tend to go backwards and forwards. I, I tend to think, well, well, let's get someone in for this record. You know, next record, I'll do it myself. Um, it's, it's just a, a nice occasional thing. And there tends to be a consistency also in the musicians that you, you work with. Um, I remember seeing, you played at the Double Door uh, in Chicago, and it was right before Mock Tudor came out. And I think he came out and played the first five songs. And I think it was the first time I saw Michael Jerome as your drummer. And I just remember you know, A, being knocked out by those songs and also just the performance and the band, I felt like was really sort of pushing you forward as opposed to some some of the bands. I mean, we've always had really great bands, but sometimes it's a little more sort of holding back on the beat and, and sometimes it's sort of propelling you. And this this outfit seemed like it was propelling you and I'm wondering how much that of a difference that makes from your point of view. Well, it means I can relax because I know uh, I, I've got an incredible rhythm section behind me. Um, so I don't have to think, you know, are these guys dragging? Or are these guys speeding up? Because they never do. They're just absolutely on the money all the time. Uh, and everything that, that Michael Jerome plays uh, swings. I mean, he just has built-in swing. And... Uh, if I could afford, if I could afford to, I, I, I'd be happy to sit in the front row during a show, to just jump off stage, sit in the front row, and just watch Michael play the drums because he's he's such a wonderful, wonderful musician, and um, you know he, he knows all that that sort of Irish and Scottish stuff as well. I mean, uh, you know he, he's kind of. Uh, schooled in all these different disciplines and he studied Indian music and uh, all, all, all these different things so he can adapt to me really easily um, and Taras is a wonderful bass player I mean it's, it's just uh, it's a treat um, to go out on the road with the band I, I just love to do it um, it's fun to play solo it's great to play with the band as well and, and you've enjoyed the trio format as opposed to the more you know filled out version that you were doing years earlier well I think I do um Although these days the, the trio is getting larger, it, it's uh, it's still no, it's still nominally a trio, but uh, I think now it's it's a four or five piece trio because uh, my, my guitar tech will play uh, rhythm guitar on a couple of songs. Um, my partner Zara will, will sing on a few things, uh, so, so it's it's because this very large overloaded trio. I tend to also and think about you know when I think of guitar you know, you're, you're, you're great guitar players. I think often people think of them as like, well, this one's a great electric guitar player. This one's really great on acoustic stuff, but you seem, you know, equally sort of talented and comfortable in, in either one. Do you, do you sort of favor one or the other, or do you practice both equally? Like is, is there, isn't there, cause, cause they're obviously different skills. One's playing, you know, unaccompanied and one is sort of fitting into a band with this electric kind of feel yeah. to it. Hmm. Um, 
I tend to treat them as very different instruments. Um, well, when I'm, when I'm playing acoustic, I'm, I'm really accompanying the voice most of the time. Uh, and it's a whole different skill set, really. Uh, so, so I have to hold down the rhythm. If I'm going to play other stuff, uh, I, I have to add harmony to that. I, I to, if I'm playing a, a solo, I have to have a solo to that. Uh, whereas, as you say, with electric, uh, you know, uh, other people can, can take uh, up the, some of the rhythm and harmonic um, roles. And I can be a little freer and looser uh, to improvise and to to to, to play around with the music. Um, uh, I probably play more acoustic than electric, um, just because uh, it, but, but, but because it takes more muscle uh, to to play acoustic. Um, if I just played electric and, and then suddenly had to play acoustic, I, I might find myself. Um, uh, get, get, getting blisters or something, but, but because it's it's a little it's a little harder, you know. So it's better to have that as your as your main practice diet, um, and then electric becomes extremely easy uh, after playing acoustic. Well, again, having seen you relatively recently, I, I've you know I've never I've never gotten any sense that you've lost any sort of step. Does does any of this get harder as you get older, or are you just able to just keep doing this the same? Uh, I think you have to thank your lucky stars, uh, really. Um, if you can still be playing uh, at seventy plus, um, uh, I mean, I do what I can to keep fit. Uh, you know, I go to the gym. You know, I, I, I stretch. Um, but uh, you know, the, the, there are many things that you need to keep in working order. Yeah, you've got to keep your ears working. You've got to keep your fingers working. Uh, so it's. Uh, you know, it's lucky, it's fortunate if you if you can keep playing. Some of my contemporaries are more arthritic than I am. Some people have other health issues. Some people have hearing issues. So I'm grateful for what I can do, and I love doing it. So I hope I can do it for as long as I can. And your your voice still sounds as good, if not better, than ever as well, which is another thing. I mean, that yeah. you never know with that either. Well, you know, I've, I've never kind of, you know, tried to be Tina Turner or something or anything. I, I've, I've never kind of, you know, tried to scream my way through through music, uh, and that's probably just as well. Um, so, uh, I mean, again, I try to look after my voice, try try to do, do my scales, my exercises, try try not to kill it. Um, you know, it, it's good to, you know, shout a bit sometimes. You know, um, you know, get a bit gritty sometimes, but. Uh, uh, this was another gig the next day, so so I, I just um, <clears throat> again I'm grateful for, for for whatever whatever I've got, whatever range I've got. Lastly, I just want to talk about so so Scott Timberg, uh, uh, a former LA Times reporter as well as author, uh, worked on this with you. Mm-hmm. Um, I just just to get this out front, uh, you know he, I, I, you were you were in the pro- probably pretty far along in the book, and and he took his own life at the end of 2019 mm-hmm. in December. Um, but so just tell me about. Just tell me about sort of the process of how this this worked, and was he sort of interviewing you and you know writing up what you said? Were you sort of writing stuff? Like how did how did it all happen? Uh, the, the book wouldn't have happened without Scott. Uh, he, he was my neighbour in, in LA, and, and he he said, "Oh, you you must do a book about the '60s. You know, it'd be so great." And I said, "Well, I can't be bothered. Um, you know, not, not interested." And he kind of harangued me for a couple of years, and, and so I said, "Well, uh, okay, I'll do it." Um, and he said, "Well, well, let me let me interview you. Uh, we'll do it as an interview process." And we tried that for a while, and um, I, I thought I thought whatever my voice as, as a as a human being was was being lost in the process. So I, I said, well, well, let me just write it. I'll, I'll write it. You come in more towards the end, uh, in a more of an editorial um, capacity, um, uh, and we'll see how that works. But but sadly, Scott took, took his uh, took his life before um, we could get to that point. So uh, it, was, it was a pretty devastating. Um, turning point in the book yeah no i was i i I read about it and i was like my my, you know heart stopped i was so and you know he's somebody who was a cultural reporter at the la times um that's right yeah Mm. sort of sort of thing i was doing at the the chicago tribune as well um Mm. but uh so 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 the book as it is really is what you wrote as opposed to him sort of crafting interviews and and then you kind of smoothing it out or something like that no, I actually sat down and wrote the whole thing, um, and, and that really did seem to be the, the best process. 
were there were there areas where when you were writing you just thought i just i just don't want to get into this i don't want to go there uh no uh sometimes i i was writing um pretending it was happening to somebody else and uh the, the hardest thing was actually to to read the uh, audiobook uh that, that that was much much tougher than than writing um that was that was hard i mean it's a very candid you know portrayal of you as a young man and you know just sort of you in the context of you know the drugs that were going around without it being sort of a you know sex drug and rock and roll type story but there's all of that is in there um you also i have to tell you i'm just going to read this just because it made me laugh out loud uh this is when you're at the the national jazz and blues festival in 1970 dave swarbrick is uh looking for a place to go to the to the loo um he wrote uh, all the portable toilets had blown down so there was nowhere backstage but he noticed a hole in the plastic sheeting at the side of the stage and stuck his hampton through there and let rip unfortunately that was the press enclosure if we were expected a great review we weren't going to get one now <laughs> it's all true it's all... the word hampton i i admire that passage yeah it's uh, it's courtney rhyming saying hampton wick uh, uh for, for the the male uh member hampton wick for the pr asterisk ck <laughs> have you have you gotten much feedback from you know you know people who you know were in the band who were you know around and read it uh some yeah um yeah um my, my, i think mostly people liked it and enjoyed it i, I was concerned that uh my memory w would diverge from other people's memories uh, and i think it clearly does in some places uh what we all remember uh, uh things happening differently <laughs> which is kind of weird uh but um on the whole uh, my contemporaries have been uh, uh supportive yes so far any feedback from linda on it uh did she read it what did, what did she say i think she liked it uh there's probably a bit too much um well i i, I was supposed to meet her the other, the other day and it didn't happen so i would have got a fuller picture but um she didn't say anything too uh terrifying she's not gonna sue me i don't think anyway I, th I think I painted painted her in a fairly good light, actually. Yeah, no, I thought so too. There, were, there actually could have been more on just, you know, it's it's not it's it's not like a deep dive into your marriage or anything like that. I mean, you know, yeah. you you know, you talk about her mostly in the musical terms, and you're making those albums. Yeah. Um, I, I saw an interview actually in the San Diego Union Tribune where he said. Uh, you know, you really didn't want to write about 1976 and 1981. Uh, Linda and I made three bad albums that I did not want to write about. And I was trying to think, what were the three? I know that you, I, I, would, I would assume you're, you're counting First Light and Sunny Vista, but I don't know what the third one is. Well, well probably uh, the, the Jerry Rafferty uh, attempt uh, at an album that didn't really come out, I, I would say was the third album. I, I think Shoot Like the Lights is a, is a better record where we're getting a bit more uh on our feet again after the uh oh yeah after the 70s where we're finally getting back in the saddle yeah no that they yeah shoot out the lights because because the jerry rafferty thing is like those songs in, in just a much less good sort of context or setting and uh and and you i think that was i think the last time i interviewed you was was when that was being re-released and we were talking about some of the, sort of the sonnet there was some sonic mishap with shoot out the lights but it's still a fantastic record but there's something where like what like the high end is missing or something uh the 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 the, the room mics are missing um uh on the on the drums you know on, on the drums to get a bigger drum sound yeah you, you, you place a couple of room mics uh in stereo a little further away from the drums and that gives the drums some size and those got accidentally wiped from the shoot out the lights session so you have to kind of replace that with, with some some kind of reverb usually um but which we did uh, yeah, yeah you know it sounds fine it sounds okay I'm sure everyone's everyone's asking if there's going to be a volume two. Volume two, um, maybe. Um, I'd have to pick it up in in eighty one, I suppose, and and uh, roll from there. But but uh, you know, the thing about the sixties into the seventies was that uh, it was very intense, uh, and a lot happened in in a very uh, dense period of time. Uh, and I think to write a volume two. Uh, to, to write another 250 pages uh might be you know a couple of decades worth of of of, of material um so uh well, when you when you do things for the first time you know it, it really leaves an impression on you you know when you play uh, um you know um schenectady for the 20th time um it, it leaves less less of an impression 
and uh, you know it's only if someone dies in the audience or there's a sort of a double murder backstage that, that you have something juicy to write about things get more repetitious so so you know yeah you have to pick and choose much more is there is there any like sort of standout story from the later years where where you think well if i did a second book at least i get this and that Oh, there's some great stories. I mean, some seriously great stories. Um, uh, touring America with uh, with a photocopy of an American Express card. Like we we did didn't have any money, but 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 we we had a photocopy of uh, of the uh, Hannibal Records American Express card, and somehow we we got around America with that. But but it took hours and hours and hours at every Hertz counter, at every every airline to to actually to to. To, 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 to make them believe that this was real. Um, anyway. That, that they was, couldn't uh, give you the actual plastic? No, no. They, 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 they couldn't or they didn't or something. I, no, none of us had credit cards at that point. I mean, it was just, uh, you know, it was just, you know, checks and, and cash, really, basically. Well, that's great. Um, I really appreciate you talking to me about this. I, I love the book and I love, you know, I've loved your music for a long, long time. And I look forward to hearing uh, what the next next thing is for you. Have you have you recorded more, um, you know, during, you know, is there is there a next album or EP coming up? Yeah. Um, well, I, I just put out two EPs uh, in the last year uh, and uh, the next band record is written. Um it's just a matter of when we can get into the studio, which probably perhaps the end of this year uh, we can get in and record. And uh, you know, it's, it's been a good time for writing. Um, not so good for anything else, but it, it's been great for having having the time and space to write. And so yeah, that's been a bonus. All right, thank you so much, Richard Thompson. It's fantastic talking to you. I hope to see you back in uh, Chicago area soon, or. I'll just have to travel and uh, and and do that, or maybe go to your songwriting camp or something. Oh yes, you'd be very welcome. Yes. <laughs> Are you doing that this summer? See, this is the yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's, it's it's happening. It's happening. Uh, it's uh, it's called Frets and Refrains, and it's uh, it's just outside Woodstock, New York, up in the Catskill Mountains. Uh, songwriting and uh, guitar playing camp we have some wonderful uh, uh, guest teachers this year we've got uh, Tiff Merritt this year John Doyle teaching guitar um, and uh, just about all, all of my family as well all, all my sons and grandsons seem to uh, be participating so uh, it's, it's, it's a great camp and uh, I think we're finally able to, to put it on um, with, with uh, <clears throat> uh, full um, COVID um, awareness uh, so it's going to be great. My good friend Steve Dawson, with whom I actually wrote a book about songwriting, um, went to it a few years ago and when Patty Griffin was there. And he was so inspired by just the whole time out there. Uh, and he has a new album that just came out that's fantastic and, and talks about how influenced those songs were by going to your, your camp. Fantastic. Yeah, it's, it's a wonderful thing. We get professional um, musicians coming as students. So... Um, there you go. Do you do you feed off of that also as a songwriter? Do you get ideas just from you know all these people kind of being in that sort of creative environment? Well, I love the creativity of the environment. It's fantastic, and sometimes uh, you, you can you, you could be teaching a class and and, uh, and you say to the class, "Well, I, I, you know, here's, here's your homework, and, and, and you know, I want you to go away and, and, and write this kind of song." And then you think, uh, maybe I'll go away and write that kind of song because that's I've got some ideas about that. So so. Um, yeah, it is, it is creative. It's wonderful to hear, um, especially like young people. We have people as young as like 16, 17, 18 years old uh, and, and hear them write some really great song or, or do, do some incredible performance. Um, you know, the, the, sometimes the, the people that young are just great singers and great performers. So it's all very inspiring, absolutely inspiring. Awesome. All right. Well, I would love to love to do that sometime, and love to hear you uh, the next time. You know, I can hear you play again because uh, you've been one of my favorites for a very long time, and it's an honor to get to talk to you. I really appreciate the time, and uh, and uh, we'll see and hear you soon, Richard. Thank you awesome. so much. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. That wraps up the first episode of the Caro Popcast. Thanks so much to Richard Thompson, whose memoir, Beeswing, is available in hardcover, ebook, and audiobook from Algonquin Books. Richard Thompson is back on the road with dates on the East Coast, in the Midwest, and the UK. He'll be playing solo shows at Chicago's Old Town School of Folk Music on November 16th and 17th. His website is richardthompson-music.com. 
check it out. The next Carol Pop guest will be spectacular bassist Bruce Thomas, who laid down such melodic, groovy, and propulsive parts as a member of Elvis Costello and the Attractions. Bruce and Elvis had a major falling out years ago, but is a reconciliation in the works? You'll hear about all that, as well as the making of such indelible albums as this year's model, Get Happy, and Imperial Bedroom. And you'll learn which mega group invited Bruce Thomas to become a member years before the attractions came together. No, it wasn't the Eagles. Shout out to Space in Evanston, which hosted my Talking in Space series and has a terrific slate of outdoor and indoor shows. And Hoosier Mama Pie Company, which provides support and sustenance. Thanks to Lou Carlozo, the producer engineer extraordinaire behind the Carol Pop theme and other technical tidbits. For production, engineering, and arranging work, check out Karma Productions, that's Karma with a C, worldwide, and email Lou at lou at quoted.com, L-O-U at Q-W-O-T-E-D.com. Thank you to Marty Rosenbaum, web developer and super duper guy and artiste. This Carol podcast was produced by Chris Swake, the most valuable player on any team. Thank you, Chris. And I'm Mark Caro. Please follow me on Twitter at Mark Caro, which is at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O. And visit our website, carolpop.com, for lively arts and cultural conversation and more about the Carol Popcast. Finally, thanks to all of you for being part of this. As the Rolling Stones sang on The Ed Sullivan Show, let's spend some time together. Bye for now.